Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. It's Monday night. We're all back. Some of us are back from vacation. Some of us are back from a super long fishing trip. And some of us are back from just a normal day of work, and we have a special guest with us. But joining us always... From Texas is Jeff Copsetta, and of course one Mr. Henry Sledge. Gentlemen, how y'all doing tonight? Doing good. Doing good and outstanding. Well, we're going to get right to it. Get down to brass tacks, if you will, without any further ado or ado. Uh, Jeff, why don't you introduce our guest tonight, and uh, let's get this bad boy rolling. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I had the pleasure to, to meet this gentleman here. Man, just a couple weeks ago, and, and uh, well, I, I take that back. We had kind of, our paths had crossed, I guess, a couple years ago, and they finally found their way back because Destiny, I guess, pulled us together and our love for World War II and keeping history alive. And uh, he was uh, lucky enough to come down here, and I was lucky enough to have him uh, set up with our air show that we've been talking about here that, that we just hosted here at the Highland Lakes Air Museum a couple weeks ago. And... Uh, so Scott, Mr. Scott Freund, uh, was just generous enough to come down with a very small part of their display from the Liberty Jump team. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, tonight. Not only is he a, an airborne reenactor, but he, uh, the photography and videography that he collects is outstanding. I know that's something that uh, Henry Sledge and some of Henry's uh, cronies are going to really appreciate to hear about. So, uh, Scott, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Scott. So, uh, yeah, real quick, uh, I just kind of wanted to uh, quickly, very quickly, let's let's gloss over your experience here. Uh, your first time coming through Highland Lakes Air Museum, your first time here at the, uh, the Blue Bonnet Air Show. Um, what was that like for you? Oh, it was, it was excellent. We had a great time. Um, you know, the Liberty Jump Team, we wanted to uh, help out different museums. Uh, so we're starting a museum tour. And so to come down there and work with you uh, in the museum and the air show was a great, great honor for us. And we're really hoping that we're gonna be able to come out there and jump uh, out of a C-47 for you uh, in late October. So it was a great experience. That'll, that'll be awesome. So I guess uh, for those who don't know what the Liberty Jump Team is, can you can you talk a little bit about that? All right. Um, in 2006, uh, the mayor of Carentan, France, wanted to do um, something special for the anniversary of uh, D-Day. So he wanted uh, people to jump from a C-47. So the Liberty Jump Team was formed at that time, and they did a commemorative jump in Carentan, France. From there, it has just exploded for us. Um, we jump all over. France uh, for D-Day. Um, we're the only team that actually jumps on the original drop zones in France. So wow. uh, last in 2019, we jumped on Saint-Germain de Verville, uh, which hadn't been jumped on since 1944 by the paratroopers and pathfinders, actually. So we do that, Angleville, Amperville, uh, Lafayette Bridge, which if you're into D-Day, you know that Lafayette is a major engagement. It's, it's the it is one of the most intense small unit fight uh, everywhere, ever in World War II. Um, and so since that time, we've just been growing and growing. And um, we're the only civilian team that still jumps with the United States Army at Benning, uh, Fort Bragg, and at Campbell, so the Week of Eagles. Uh, we travel all around the United States and Canada going to uh, air shows. So it's it's just a great honor to do this, to uh, remember the veterans and, and honor them by jumping from a C-47 dressed in M42 uh, paratrooper equipment uh, and all that. So, um, and we're expanding even this year, we're going to museums, we're starting a museum tour uh, where we're traveling around. Um, we're actually going to Hawaii. So the Pacific, Pacific Aviation Museum on Ford Island is hosting, hosting um, the Liberty Jump Team weekend. So they just restored a C-47. It is a static display, but we're going to take the visitors and have them go through a mock uh, jump run with the jump master giving commands. 
Uh, and we're going to start this this year where we go all over America doing this, doing that very same thing with all these different museums that have C-47s. How surreal was it for you guys the first time you jumped on those battlefields during the um, the anniversary? I mean, I just couldn't even imagine. It's one thing, you know, to it's cool as hell and it's got to be surreal just to jump out of those C-47s in full uniform and kit, but to actually jump in the same areas in the same airspace or the same towns. Just... Uh, it is, it is, um, well, it, it is very emotional. Uh, when you go to Angleville, all plain, uh, the two medics were in the church and they were caring for wounded paratroopers and the Germans. Um, if you go into the church, there is still damage from World War II and the pews, uh, the church pews are still stained with blood. And so when you walk in there and you think about this, um, it, it becomes really emotional because it's, it's so powerful to think, Oh my goodness, I, I, I just jumped on the exact same drop zone that they dropped on. I've moved to that location and now here I am. Uh, and it is, it's really, it's, it's emotional. Um, it was the same thing uh, in all these drop zones to think about what happened there uh, and what we're doing to commemorate that stuff. It is, it's very emotional. How's the, this a little weird question, but how's the development in those areas? Are a lot of those smaller villages and hamlets, are they still underdeveloped? Are they pretty much a lot of it's so overdeveloped now that you really can't see a lot of the old landmarks? Yeah, actually, um, actually most of it is very similar to what it was wow. in 44, um, which is absolutely amazing, especially Angleville. Now there, there are some new homes and all, sure. and, you know, that kind of stuff, but it's not very well developed there in Normandy. Normandy is a very small area um, when it comes to, you know, small villages and all that. And, and it just doesn't, it hasn't grown that much. So it is, you can go, you can walk through St. Mary Glees and look at, take a, a booklet of old photos and you can go to these, all these different buildings and locations and match them up perfectly. That's how awesome it is. Wow. That's cool. So you had mentioned you've got something like, a couple hundred members of Liberty Jump Team now, correct? Yes, we have a couple hundred members from all over the world. Um, uh, so we have we have our, uh, a European president and a, a North American president. Uh, we have people from the Czech Republic. We actually just hosted our basic airborne course. So uh, if you are not an airborne, a military airborne jumper, uh, we actually have a jump course for you in Corsicana, Texas. And so what ends up happening is we actually had two people from um, England come out to this and we had one from Paris, France come out to it recently. And, and basically we go through a week long process of teaching you everything, the equipment, how to use it, uh, all of that. After you do all your ground school, um, then basically what happens is we put you up in a Cessna. We wanna make sure that you're comfortable jumping out of an airplane. Uh, we put you up in a Cessna. If you can make that jump, then we put you in a C-47 and you jump out of a C-47. So we just hosted um, school. So it, it actually, it's, we're getting people from everywhere, all over the world, uh, come and join us. You know, That's I, outstanding. I used to be brave and think, oh, I could jump. I want to, when I was a teenager, I want to go skydiving. I want to go skydiving. And about, I don't know, six or seven years ago, I had some friends down here from New Jersey. Like, let's all go skydiving. And I'm thinking, I'm older now. I got a business. I got two kids. And all of a sudden, my bravado went out the window. And I was at an event down here, and there was a, another jump crew down here, and they were doing some training, and some of the reenactors were talking about it. And I'm like, that's something I really, really want to do, but there's just, I don't know, something to me, I just don't know if I would be able to make that jump. I would love to sit here and be all, yeah, I, I could do it, I could do it. But I don't think it's a scary part of me. I just, I, I just, I don't know. I have so much respect for the guys who do it, and I would love to think I, I could do it. I got the uniform, I got all the gear, but I just got to get over that little, all the people depending on me thing. Because what if? But the what ifs never happen. Well, knock on wood, they never happen. So, I I would love to do something like that, but it would just take a little extra psyching up on my end just to get over that little hesitant hump. You, you know, it, most people are afraid of heights, but you know what? Uh, if you drove to the grocery store today, you are more at risk mm -hmm. driving to the grocery store than you are jumping out of an airplane. And the equipment that we have is super reliable. Uh, we have an impeccable safety record. And um, you just have to get over that fear of the, the height. And, that, and that's what it is, is, is most people look out the window and go, 
oh my goodness, this is a really long fall. But in reality, um, once you're out, it is the most, it's, it's very loud on the plane. Sure. Incredibly loud. Scott, uh, so what altitude are you guys jumping at usually? Right about 1,500 feet. That's, so, that's so, what I mean, that's an ignorant question, but I never did airborne, so. Yeah, about 50. And so you can adjust that uh, you know, 1,250 to 1,500, but it, it's usually 1,500. FAA will want mm. us to be at 1,500. Um, mm. And so regular skydivers that come out with us are like, oh, man, that is way too low. I don't like that. <laughs> um, but they're used to jumping from quite a bit higher, uh, doing the free fall and pulling when they want, where we're doing military static line. So basically... You're out the door, you're starting to count to your four, and usually right about three, you start to feel the parachute open. And then at four, it's full canopy. You're gonna check, look up, and you're gonna make sure you have a good canopy. And and then, then it's quiet and you get to just fly. And it is it's the coolest thing ever, you know, it really is. Um, you know, when you get down to landing, you know, the thing about landing is, um, if you stood on a three foot desk with the parachutes that we use, uh, which uh, I have a set 10, uh, other guys like our, we have a bunch of Rangers and SF guys that jump with us. We even Delta force guys that jump with us. They use, a lot of them use the uh, SF 10. Uh, our students use the MC one dash one Delta, um, semi steerable. They're all semi steerable, but it, it, the way these parachutes are designed to just jump off a three foot table or something. And that's pretty much what you have the feeling when you land. I don't, wow. I don't want to gloss over your time about how safe it is. And I'm sure it is. So I, I, I know we kind of cut you off in the middle of your, your safety thing. So if you wanted to go back and finish that, that's, that's perfectly okay. No, it, it's, it, we are, it is very safe. It is incredibly safe. Uh, I mean, the shoots are open. They're made, they're designed to open. They really are designed to open. Uh, and by chance, if there was some type of an accident, you have a reserve, a MERPS reserve. Um, the old reserves you'd pull and you'd have to feed out the parachute. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, these parachutes nowadays have a spring-loaded assist. So the minute you pull, uh, the spring ejects the canopy out to catch the air, which inflates it that much quicker so you're not falling that much further. But um, I've been doing this with this team now for eight years, nine years, and I've never seen anybody pull a reserve. You know, it's funny. It's just an, it's, it's one of those irrational fears and, and you're sitting here talking about how safe it is. And I know it's safe. And I'm thinking, Hey Don, you just spent 11 hours on Friday in a kayak and a foot and a half inch of water with, and you saw eight alligators that day, two of them were 12 footers by your canal. <laughs> Most people would say you're crazy for being out on Lake Okeechobee in a kayak with alligators. And so it's just one of those just irrational fears that I just have to get over. I, but I honestly, I truly, I've been thinking about for three years. I really want to do one of these. I might have to head out to Texas sometime and take you guys up on one of your, uh, your classes. Yeah. You, you know, that, that is great. We're, you can come out. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a schedule. Uh, we're going to have a couple events. We're looking at possibly having another uh, basic airborne course in October. You know, if you don't want to jump, come out and just check us out, see what we're all about. Um, you know, everybody talks about the airborne brotherhood, um, and sisterhood because we have a lot of females that jump with us too, but I, I look at the Liberty jump team this way. It, it's a family. Yeah. Um, I have met some of the best people I've ever met in my life, uh, through the Liberty jump team and, um, come out and just check us out. And I have a feeling once you, once you see what we're all about and, and you get comfortable with it, you're going to say, okay, I want to do this. Oh, and, sure. and then you're in and you're hooked. And that's one of the cool things about having a community with shared interests is that brotherhood you're talking about. You know, anytime you know, that's me and Jeff are both living historians and reenactors, and that's one of our favorite things about the hobby. Not only do we get to share the the history with the community, but it's just being around like minded people who share the same passion, whether it's World War II history, jumping out of planes or whatever it may be. A lot of people don't have that luxury to be able to go away for a weekend and be around twenty, thirty, forty people with the same interest. You know, most people, if they're lucky, have four or five guys they can hang out with, but to have a whole crew yeah. like that, it is just such a privilege. Yes, it, exactly. You know, and, and, you know, Jeff would know this too, because I, I know he was in the army. When, when you're in the military uh, and, and you're, you're, you're pushed to danger, it builds a bond that's absolutely incredible. And the guys that I went through boot camp with and served with, uh, I mean, my goodness, man, I'm, I'm going to date myself here. That was like 38 years ago. But <laughs> the thing is, is 
I'm still great buddies with those guys. I mean, and, and I, I ha maybe I haven't talked to one or two of them for 10 years, but the first time we talk to each other, it's like we've never missed a day because of that, that bond. And, and that's exactly what happens here. We're doing something that's kind of dangerous and the bond that we build with each other is absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I was going to mention that too. Just what was there, six or seven of you guys here that day at the air show? And you could just, I could feel it. I, I could see the camaraderie that, that you guys had just, just in the way you guys were presenting and, you know, just your, your setting up and tearing down everything and, and, and your display looked so professional. I, I wish I took more pictures. I wish I had more time to take <laughs> pictures of your display. I mean, trust me, I got some ideas for, for in here now because of you guys, but. Uh, yeah, and, and you had mentioned too. So uh, talk a little bit about once you guys land, the that kind of that welcoming committee that that you guys receive when you're on the ground there. Um, when we go to France, um, uh, Normandy is a very unique place. So when you're when you're in France and you make a jump in, let's say, Angleville All Plain, and you land on the actual DZ, the entire town is there to meet you, and when they meet you, they have uh, sandwiches, jambo and fromage, ham and cheese sandwiches on a baguette, and they have beer for you, and they have calvados. And even though you can't talk, you know, you, you, it's hard to communicate if you can't speak French. You know, you, I have a couple little words that I know, but they just want to hug you and they want to talk to you and they're talking to you and you're like, yeah, okay, okay. You know, and they have <laughs> pictures and, and it's like that everywhere. And, you know, when we jump in at Lafayette, uh, Lafayette, there's probably 10,000 people waiting for us. And we go down the, we go down the line and it's just, Hey, American paratrooper, American, come, come, come. And, uh, you know, I've made some friends over there where I just made a jump and they're like, Hey, come to the house, come to the house for food, you know? <laughs> and I go over there and they have food for us, uh, and Calvados and beer. And, and, uh, it's just an absolutely incredible time. It is, it is the most incredible time. Yeah. And, you know, when you first told me that it kind of it, it gave me a different perspective, because, of course, us as American reenactors, we don't really you know, our civilian population, of course, was not at any real risk during the war. Yeah. So when we're trying, you know, when we're keeping history alive from the American standpoint, it's from the American warrior, somebody who you know served in the military. Whereas when you were telling me that it was almost like these people they're bringing the history alive. They're probably remembering stories that were told to them from their, probably their grandparents who as just as civilians living through the invasion of Fortress Europa and all of the Nazi occupation that they had to deal with prior to that. I, that's a whole nother level of bringing that history alive. And, and it's so neat to me just to think that from the civilian perspective, the appreciation that they show for you guys keeping it alive because it's it, it does just as much to honor the paratroopers as it does to honor their you know the, the generation that came before them of their family just as civilians caught up in the middle of the greatest conflict in human history so that's that was really interesting to hear about that yeah and i'll give you another example of something that's absolutely incredible um in 2019, I went to I went to go look at all the C-47 crash sites, and I wanted to go see where the, these paratroopers had lost their life, uh, and and just basically go there and, you know, you 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 have a, a beer or you pour them a beer, and just remember them. And we pulled up to this house, and um, I, I kind of pulled by the driveway, and the guy runs out and he's talking to me in French, and um, I, I said I didn't know, so I made a gesture like airplane crash, and he goes, Oh yeah, come come come. Uh, he took me into the backfield where a C-47 crashed and all these paratroopers were killed. Uh, nothing grows there on his farm uh, where this crash was because of the oils and other things that came out of the C-47 when it caught on fire, when it crashed. Um, and he says, right here, right here, here, here. And then he, he gestured and he told me how they took a tractor and they pulled all the pieces over to this uh, wood line. And then he says, come, come, come. And we go into his barn and inside his barn, he had a huge box of C-47 parts and wow. things that he had picked up in his field. And then I said, well, thank you very much. Um, and he says, no, 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 come. We sit down at his picnic table. Next thing you know, he's got cider for us and Calvados. <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 he's he's like, uh, he wrote down his email and he says, hey, hey, send, send. And I said, okay, I'll send you an email. And then we went back the next day and we gave him a huge framed picture of a C-47 with a paratrooper jumping out of it. 
And he basically says, wall house. I said, yes, please hang it in your house. And so the next time I go back to Normandy, I'm going to go back that's and awesome. visit him and, and all that. And that's how these people are. They absolutely love you in Normandy. They absolutely do. Well, coming uh, off of what Jeff said, it's, and I mean, this is no, obviously disrespect to our veterans, but it's truly, you know, it's the history of our, you know, our men and women who fought in World War II, but it's their history. I mean, it's their yes. land, it's their people, and it was their ancestors that we helped and provided contribution to prevent them from, you know, being under control of Germany for longer than they were. So when it comes to history, that area, that particular part of the war, that campaign is, in fact, their history to the truest you know, form of the word. And so, and I was thinking when you're talking about landing, how you don't speak the language and they're bringing out food, that just makes it more authentic because most our guys didn't speak the language either. So you got to experience what they experienced when they landed. Yes, exactly. It, it, it is the greatest honor. And after the first time I went and I realized that they were giving us things, little trinkets, um, I fill my pockets full of patches and I have Liberty Jump Team, little, these little rubber wristbands and when the kids run up, um, you know, we take patches off our uniforms and give them patches or we give them these wristbands, we give them coins and other various things. They go absolutely bonkers for it. They, they just love it. So it's, it's, it, it is the greatest experience. And again, if you wanted to do that and you didn't want to be a jumper, it, it doesn't matter because our team runs the drop zone too. So we have our non-jumping team members that run the drop zone. So our entire team is involved. Um, you know, and just to kind of give you an idea, uh, one of our jump masters, one of our lead jump masters lost his leg in Vietnam. And so he jumps with an artificial leg. Uh, he's in his early 70s and he still jumps with us. Our oldest jumper is 82 and he has something wow. to the effect of 1500 jumps. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's quite the deal. It really is. <laughs> That's outstanding. Golly. Yeah. Well, so it, it can be done. It, it's a good time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, again, thank you for what you're doing uh, over there for, for all of us that just love the history and love World War II. I mean, to, to have you guys as kind of an extension of, of, of us as reenactors that are just kind of probably going to stay stateside and not jump out of an airplane. Uh, it, it's awesome. We appreciate what you're doing. So I kind of want to shift gears a little bit. So we've been talking, you know, European theater. So I'd like to talk Pacific theater a little bit. Scott, you know, you and, I, you and I had a great phone call that one night that the stuff that you were telling me about with your, the, the videography, the photography, that, that I guess that's more of your, your, your hobby. Um, I can't wait. And I don't know if Henry is already aware of some of this that you do or not, but I, I, man, talk a little bit or a lot <laughs> about uh, what we talked about and some of the stuff that you found, uh, particularly I remember with uh, Bordelon. Right? Was it Bordelon that uh, on Tarawa? Did oh you yeah, to... so, yeah, um, yeah. So Bonnyman's Bonnyman's bunker Bonnie... and that kind of stuff. And Sandy Bonnyman. I'll, I'll go. I'll go back a little bit further. So um, when I was a kid growing up, well, me and my mom lived in Virginia, and Baba Black Sheep was going on. Uh, it was a new TV show, and I was running around doing the newspaper. And this old gentleman came to me, and he said. Uh, What's your hurry, boy? And I said, well, sir, I got to get home. Pappy Boyington's going to be on TV. And so, so he says, you stop by here the next day uh, and I have something for you. So he gave me a book and I still have this book. Um, and that started me on this process of really getting into military history. Um, and so I started buying books and I probably have 1500 books here in my library um, on World War II. And I, I really... I started to focus on Pearl Harbor and um, that became my absolute, um, that was really what drove me. And what was upsetting was every book that I bought had the same photograph and every documentary I watched always had the same film clips. And mm -hmm. so I was like, I, I don't get it. Yeah, uh, there has to be thousands of photographs out there. So. I decided to do a documentary. I, well, I was getting tired of documentaries. Um, they just, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't the way I liked them. And so what ended up happening is um, I decided I'm self-taught. I, I don't know anything about video production, anything like that. And so I basically taught myself how to make documentaries. And um, 
my first production was Pearl Harbor Revisited, the USS uh, Utah, USS Arizona. And I started traveling around America. And in those travels, I ended up meeting about 80 Pearl Harbor survivors. And when I say Pearl Harbor survivors, if you were at Wheeler, you're considered a Pearl Harbor survivor. If you know your bellows. And so basically I interviewed um, John Finn. I went to John Finn's house. That guy was absolutely phenomenal. Spent the whole day with him. Um, and so I got all these interviews and I, I started to realize I wanted to look at these films. And when you call the National Archives, there's a person there that basically says, would you like me to look for stuff? Well, they have a book. And what they do is they go through this book and they say, hey, pull film reel, this, this, and this. And they send you this generic bundle. So when I did it, I went and I said, no, I'm not going to take the standard stuff. I have hours of Pearl Harbor footage that you've never seen in any documentary. And that led me to um, finding this blip on this film. And I kept thinking, what is this blip? So film, when you run it through a computer, runs at 30 frames per second. So I found this little blip. And so I slowed it down and I ran it so that I could look at each frame in the second. And what I actually found was uh, the Arizona explosion filmed from a Japanese airplane. So what I did is I took one of those frames and I sent it to Hawaii and they authenticated it. Yes, this is real film footage. I slowed it down, let it run for five seconds because it was only half a second. They flew me out to Hawaii. We had a huge press conference because now new footage was being found. And so I was like, okay, I'm onto something here because I had all of these, these true films of Pearl Harbor. Uh, you know, it's, I, I didn't take a ship explosion from Okinawa and put it in a Pearl Harbor documentary. I, sure. I used only authentic stuff, photographs and all this. And so my second production was Pearl Harbor, The Real Story. Uh, the National Park Service ended up taking it and they sold it in their bookstore for many, many years. And now uh, the streaming services have kind of taken over. So nobody buys a Blu-ray. So it's actually on Amazon Prime. Nice. Um, but that led me to, if I could find something like that, what else could I find? And so I went back to the archives and I collected probably 20 hours of Iwo Jima footage. Um, I collected probably about 900 Iwo Jima images. Um, I did the same thing uh, for uh, Tarawa. And when we talk about Tarawa, I met uh, Clay Bonnyman Evans. So he's the grandson of uh, Lieutenant Bonnyman, who is famous for the bunker attack. And he only had one photograph. And so what I did is I started going through all these photographs and I'm like, okay, I see a palm tree that's bent at a certain angle. And I use that as my reference point to find other photographs. Well, then I ended up finding probably six photographs of Bonnyman sitting in this foxhole uh, talking to people. The story about Bonnyman, if you read some of these accounts, is he was killed very early once he got to the top of the bunker. Well, going through all these films and looking at all this stuff, I was able to prove that, no, he actually was alive for quite a long time wow. until he went onto the other side of the bunker. And so I put together this very detailed, using photographs, films, I put it all together to lay out a complete timeline of the Bonnyman uh, bunker attack on Tarawa um, to show where Bonnyman was at all times, what he was doing, who he was with, um, and all of that. And so I posted that on my YouTube page um, and it's been reviewed by quite a few people. And, and I think Clay Bonnyman Evans even made some comments about that was really good work. So I'm totally into taking these photographs and, and doing that kind of work with them to, to find and tell a story using the photographs and how they move, how troops moved and all that kind of stuff. So now this is, let me pause real quick. This is crazy because uh, we didn't do an episode last week. Uh, something came up, Henry's on vacation. I had something going on. And so I posted a redeployment episode and I was going to do one that I've been thinking about doing for a while, which was an interview I did with some of the um, guys who run the Springfield Armory site. It's a great interview I did a few years back. Now, Jeff did not talk to me about this conversation you and he had about the Bonnyman stuff. For some reason, at the last minute, I did not post a Springfield Armory interview. I reposted the interview I did with Clay Bonnyman Evans about his book, Bones with My Grandfather. So our new listeners just heard the episode last week that I posted with myself and Clay Bonnyman Evans. And now here we are the very next week following up with you talking about that, which is very cool. This was all part of the plan. We're very organized that way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you were talking about earlier about how surreal it was jumping out of C-47s. 
over those landings. Now, Clay Bonnyman Evans has been down there at Tarawa. He was actually there when they, you know, were, was there within a week from when they recovered his grandfather's bones. I had him on the podcast, and like two months later, he joined us at Fort Morgan, Alabama for the 75th anniversary Tarawa landings reenactment we did complete with landing crafts. And I got to be on the landing craft with him, and I have a selfie I took, and he's behind me, and you can just see his face. He's just he's staring out at the uh, horizon. He's not thinking about what we're doing a reenactment. I, and you can just tell he's he's in uniform. We provide him with the uniform. He's on the landing craft. He's got a rifle. The water splashing on us. I am sure all the information he's done on his grandfather, all the trips down there, and now he gets to put that little bit more and probably had that same sense you have. Obviously, he's not in Tarawa, but here he is on a landing craft, out in the water, bumping up and down, surrounded by guys in full Marine Corps uniforms and gear, and I'm sure he got to share a little bit of that same experience you do every time you jump out of those planes. Yeah, funny you should say that. I was there, and I actually took photos of... uh, I probably posted about 300 photographs of that event. Um, and, and because I knew Clay was gonna be there, that's why I drove out there from Texas uh, to meet him. Uh, I got his book, had him autograph and all that, but I was there at that exact same event. I was, when, when the landing craft landed there on the shore, I was in, a, in an area on the beach snapping photos of everybody. So now you now gotta you go, go through your footage. Investigation of where Don is. I was on the second <laughs> landing, so I'll be the six foot five guy on the left hand <laughs> side, stage right, fourth guy back during the second By landing. The tree with the angle in it. <laughs> so yeah, I was the tall guy in the se- second landing. And the funny thing is when I got on the beach, the third landing came in and uh, by then the ramp was nice and wet and I forget who was carrying it, but the guy carrying the 30 cal machine gun slipped and went ass over tea kettle right into the water, just like the real thing. But that was such a great event. It's it's just surreal to know that you were there too. So that's awesome. Yeah. You know, I, I, I travel America to all these events because I enjoy it. I truly enjoy it. Um, I want to see what other people are doing. Um, you know, and I, and I try to get them involved with us also. So it's, I like doing it. That's that's what I like. I really enjoy it. So, so why do you think um, it it took you to uncover all of this footage? Why all of these big time documentaries? Why is it a, is it an expense? Is it a time frame issue? I mean, <laughs> not to take away from your effort, but it, you know, average Joe in a way, you're self taught, and you have these big time documentary production teams putting these things together that run for 20 years on TV. I mean, what, what was the secret? Why, why do you think that is that you found all this stuff that was right there in the archives? Um, because it's, well, to, to put it really simple, it's my passion. Um, if you're going to tell a story, you have to be passionate about it. And if you're not, uh, you cut corners and you, you have to ask yourself, um, does the guy in Los Angeles, that has a production company that is required to get that's exactly uh, what I was 20 documentaries say. done in a year. Do you think he cares about the veterans? Does he? Do you think he cares about really what the event's all about? No, he needs to get 20 documentaries made so that he can make and pay his bills. I make documentaries as a hobby. Mm-hmm. I give them to people. Um, I don't care if I make money. Uh, it's my passion. I want you to know what the real story is and what really happened. Uh, and that's why I do it. And, uh, you know, it's, I have been lucky with, with some of the stuff. Again, I, I'm not a professional. It, it's just me. I do all my own research. I write my own script. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> you can go on my YouTube page and watch my Iwo Jima documentary. Um, I'll give you a little insight on that one. It's kind of comical. Uh, a buddy of mine from work is my narrator. You know, what I did is I, I went around and I listened to different people at work and I'm like, hey, you sound like you could be in this documentary. He did the narration for me. Uh, I went out for sushi one night and I met the sushi chef and I said, hey, can you <laughs> something for me? And so the give me dude a good that bonsai? I, I had sushi with at a restaurant <laughs> did the the Japanese portion for me in my in my documentary. Um, and, and that's because I do it all. I do my own animations. I'm not an animator. So my, my, my maps are, are basic, but I, I do everything. I do 
absolutely everything. I, I go to do the interviews. I do all the editing, the script writing. I do the animated maps that I have in my documentaries. Um, I do get footage some sometimes from uh, DVIDs, which is the Department of Defense video system. Um, and I get films from the National Archives as long as they're public domain military, because then you don't have to pay for that stuff. Because then I turn around and I give it away. Um, like I said, you can you can go on YouTube and watch the bunker attack from Tarawa. I, I, I want you to understand what happened. You can go and watch my Iwo Jima documentary on YouTube because I want you to understand what happened on Iwo Jima. And, and I will say one thing with the Iwo Jima, I did have somebody contact me from a, um, a network and said, hey, send me, the, send me a copy. So I did, I sent them a copy and they said, no, no, you send me the high def copy. And I'm like, well, I sent you the best copy I have. And they're like, well, aren't you a studio? And I said, no, I'm just one dude. <laughs> and they're like, well, don't you film in high def? And I'm like, well, no, I can't afford it. You know, I basically, at the time I had a little home Sony camera is what I was doing stuff with. Um, and they said, Hey, once you upgrade, let us know. And we will start, we'll, we'll, let's, let's work together because your style is completely different than anybody else's style that we know. Uh, so we've upgraded to all 4k and we want to start doing more and more stuff. Um, and all that. So, yeah. Well, I would it, like to nominate Henry to do some VO work for you. What's, what's that? I said I'd like to nominate Henry to do some VO work for you on your next uh, documentary. <laughs> yeah, I, I've actually called Henry on the, and we talked on the phone. I said, yeah, we'll have to do that. So I, I, I want to go to Peleliu with him. I have I've probably, I think I've posted on my uh, Facebook business page, 600, 700 Peleliu photos. Um, you know, get them out there. Let people look at them. You know, I love it. Go ahead, Henry. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. No, Henry. No, I was going to say just to, to, in response to you know what you said about your passion and and that's what I was really hoping. I I knew you were going to say that, and so this is really now for for our listeners right now. You know, question what you're seeing, question what you're watching, because you know we tend to uh, you know some folks say, oh, saw a movie must be they must have done their research or it wasn't even a movie. This was a documentary. This wasn't movie this was this was really meant you know but it doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly the full story or mm -hmm. that's exactly what happened because you know the more the more you do the research the, the really for me the more i found out i didn't know because i took everything from a documentary perspective or oh, i read it in a book it must be true uh and of course now in the age of the internet you know um everybody's knowledge is a mile wide with google but about that thick of actual information and knowledge to back it up. So, um, you know, question it. And, and, and Scott, you are just an absolute gem to the World War II community, to the reenacting community. You're, you're such a, a patriot. Um, it, it is just incredible. I, I'm still waiting by my mailbox for some of I, your DVDs. <laughs> I, I took off. I, I'm going to send you those DVDs so you can use them in the store to sell and make money for the museum. <laughs> um, I had to, I had to take off and get to uh, school because our students were coming in. And so I wasn't able to get the mailbox, but yes, I am sending you a, a box of DVDs to sell, to raise money for the museum. Before we get the, before we get the Henry statement, I just want to trace off of what uh, Jeff said about passion and you know, how you're able to find this stuff because your passion versus the, the publishing house. And it, that, that's kind of the same way a lot of this stuff happens. What was it like? Five, six years ago, the guy had the ruptured appendix and he was laid up in his house after surgery and he was looking through different books and photos and he's the one who kind of discovered the whole Iwo Jima thing. Like, oh, wait a minute, the flag raising, there's that, you know, the, there's a misidentification there. And that came from somebody who was laid up in his bed, who was a history buff, who was reading different books that he had read multiple times. But since he was laid up, he read one and he was looking at the photos like, wait a minute, that's kind of how he figured out his basically the equipment on the uniform and how it wasn't in the the photo of the Iwo Jima, but that person was wearing it and vice versa. And so, yeah, it's just through passion and sometimes just happenstance. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it, the dedication to really focus really leads you to new discoveries, and that's what's important. Now, what are you going to say, uh, Henry? No, I was just going to put in a plug for, for what Scott does because he – he, he sent me some archival photos or, or archival film on Peleliu. 
that I'd never seen before. And that, that was right around the time you and I talked on the phone, Scott. And uh, some of that, you know, I've seen obviously every documentary on Peleliu that's ever been made, but to see, you know, we like we share the same passion here, guys. So I'm hungry to see that other angle shot of the LVT coming in that, you know, you can tell it's really close to the angle that you just saw or have seen in every documentary for years, but here's that one that you didn't see. And it, uh, you sent two or three clips and it was really cool, Scott, because there was one, like at the one minute 22 mark, there's a guy and it wasn't, but I swear it looked like it could have been my dad. The dude was sitting there in a bunker with his helmet off. I even froze it and took a picture of it and sent it to my mom. I said, mom, tell me that doesn't look like that. And she said, it kind of does, but your father had blonde hair. His hair is brown. That's not your dad, you know, but it's still, I mean, it's just to see images of Peleliu that I've read so much about and to see these images in film that I've never seen before. And it, it's just really cool. And so, yeah, I, I wish I could see every archival photo out there on Peleliu and Okinawa. You know, not not only is it monotonous and tiresome to see the same footage, but as a historical aspect, that secondary, thirdary footage that he finds, that's a lens of another photojournalist who was out there in the same danger, dealing with the same risk as the photojournalist whose content we've already seen. So by not showing their footage, it's kind of a disservice to them and their family members because their family right. member was. 20 yards away, probably on the same landing craft of the guy who shot the footage we've all seen at Ignacium. He's 15, 20 feet away, different angle. And for whatever reason, the content that he created in that same environment or that same danger just gets overlooked. And that's kind of an injustice in itself. It, it is. It is amazing. I, I, uh, I, I sat with Norm Hatch in his basement. His entire basement was like an office of photographs and films and, uh, you know, he talks about his crew that was on Iwo Jima and how they filmed so much. And what most people don't know either is, um, so Tarawa, half the footage of Tarawa is in color, half is in black and white because the government was, was testing color cameras. But Norma was telling me that after Tarawa, um, basically the, the United States government filmed everything in color to duplicate it, to send it to um, theaters, you know, movie, to movie tone news or whatever uh, that was, they would duplicate it in black and white. Well, what ends up happening is if they didn't preserve the color film correctly, you're only left with the black and white. So technically after Tarawa, everything should have been filmed in color. So all Iwo Jima film footage should all, all be in color, but the majority of it's in black and white and the color reels have been lost to wherever, um, or they've, turned the sepia tone red or whatever so you know it, and it is there each one of these islands had numerous people taking photographs taking films uh and you you only see certain bits of it now i will be honest when you go to the national archives and you do pull reels um some of it is too graphic to allow anybody to see um and so really? i don't allow anybody to see that um it doesn't go into any of my documentaries um, so it's, there, there's a lot of stuff there. You just have to go and sit and, and I, my brain is slipping right now. K3, K38, right? K35. Is that it, right, Henry? My dad was K35. K35. Fifth Marines. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Three, K35. I, 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 my brain was slipping. Well, eighth so Marines was for, a Toro, so. Yeah. So when I was looking for his film footage, that's what I ran through the Department of Defense and I ran it through some other stuff. And that's how I came up with K35's footage to send him and to see if you could look for his dad. And so you can find that footage. You just have to know how to search for it and, and all that. And they put stuff in different categories. So the Marines took photographs, the Navy had photographers. So you have to know to go to these different sources to get these documents and photographs. Um, but once you find it, it is just, it is mind boggling. Hey Scott, just to swing over real quick. My brother sent me a video that I think if you haven't seen, you may be interested in just because you're dealing with of old photographs and uh, video footage. There's an interesting video, little 15, 20 minute explanation. It's called how Kodak exposed the atomic bomb. Have you seen that? No, I have not. Basically when we were doing the nuclear bomb testing out in Nevada, obviously the government and the department of defense was keeping it on the hush hush. Well, Kodak had started finding um, 
specs in their undeveloped paper. And they were like, well, where's these specs coming from? And um, because they had found previously that whenever we had used radium to make our glow-in-the-dark watch faces and the you know the instruments for the planes, sometimes that radium would leave would seek through and affect the photo paper. Long story short, this guy does a great 15-minute explanation of how Kodak and one of their physicists figured out that the fallout that came from the Nevada testing site got into the air system and the Kodak manufacturing plant in Indiana and the nuclear particles was affecting their light sensitive paper. And it got to the point where, um, from 1948, whenever we did that testing all the way up to like 1965, the government had a hush hush, um, agreement with the Kodak and other film manufacturing plants that that they would let them know when we were going to do, outdoor nuclear testing so that they wouldn't produce any film in that day. And then when that came out later in the future, like people were upset that, so you were, you guys had this agreement with Kodak and his film manufacturing, but not with the general public to be worried about nuclear fallout, but it's a great little 15 minute video. I suggest you guys check it out if you're interested in that, but it's called how Kodak exposed the nuclear test. They figured out what was going on basically by photo paper, no x-ray photo paper being uh, corrupted. It's a crazy little story how, oh, so we did have nuclear fallout all through the 50s, 60s and 70s. And they're talking about how they can actually predate um, skeletons throughout the world by um, pre-nuclear testing versus post-nuclear testing because all of us have so much uh, nuclear fallout in our bones. And so they can actually, and they're saying basically wine that you buy that was manufactured pre-1943 is completely different because of the same fallout they got into fruit. So it's a pretty interesting little documentary. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. <laughs> that is interesting. <laughs> So uh, you got any future uh, documentaries you're planning on doing or any future works? Or are you just primarily focusing on the uh, Liberty Jump team right now? Well, <laughs> it's a li- it's not quite uh, it's not quite the military, but right now we're wrapping up uh, a Kent State documentary. Interesting. Um, the when you listen to um, people talk about Kent State, um, everybody has, oh, these conspiracy theories, this, that. And, and again, I took about, um, took about two years and I collected probably 500 photographs. Um, I've collected, I think four, eight millimeter films, uh, that were the, the student was filming on May 4th, um, that basically have never been seen before. And so we've, we've kind of analyzed the sequence of photos and put them into this documentary. So you actually see the troop movements, where they went, how they went there, why they went there. You can see the students, um, you can see the students uh, throwing rocks, sticks, um, you know, and, and the movement back and what led to that. And, you know, there's always these conspiracies in regards to this. And when you, when you look at the photographs in the films, you can say, okay, that doesn't quite match what the conspiracy is. So we can put that conspiracy to bed and it's done. For the sake and, of our younger uh, audience who's listening to this tomorrow, scratching their head saying, what happened at Kent State? <laughs> let's let's just bring them up to speed a little bit. If you want to give a little background of what happened at Kent State and why the Army was there and so forth. Um, so basically at Kent State, um, on April 30th, uh, 1970, uh, President Nixon uh, announced the Cambodian incursion. And that set off a bunch of protests at college campuses all around America. And uh, at Kent State, they started to have the protest. And it got to the point where they actually burned down the ROTC building, which was on campus. Uh, The mayor of Kent decided that he needed to take action. So he contacted the governor. Um, The governor brought in the National Guard. The National Guard basically was there to protect uh, the campus and the city. And... There, there's a lot of issues with that. And, and basically what ended up happening is uh, they made a determination that they were not going to have a, a, a rally on Monday. And how this rally got planned for Monday, May 4th, is on May 1st, 
the history students at Kent State had a, a meeting at the Victory Bell where they buried the Constitution because Nixon's actions had violated the Constitution. Um, and so they buried the Constitution. But the kids, uh, Kent State is a commuter college, so kids were leaving. So they said, hey, let's finish this up or let's talk about it again uh, about the Constitution on Monday, May 4th. Uh, the kids start to show up. The kids are coming back to the campus. They see all these National Guardsmen. They're like, what's going on? And they're just wanting, they're watching what all these National Guardsmen are doing. In reality, hardly any of the students were really protesting. There was a small group that were protesting. Most of them were just watching. And they, the National Guard became kind of concerned with all these students. And they decided to fire tear gas on them to the, disperse them. And it just went from there, it went to chaos. And you have four students killed. Uh, two of them had nothing to do with the protest in any way, shape, or form. Uh, one of them was actually at Kent State on an ROTC scholarship. Um, and he was killed, and nine kids were wounded. So, uh, a pretty devastating thing where armed troops with M1 Grand rifles fire on students. So, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting story. No documentaries have been done on it in probably the last eight years. Um, so I thought, you know what, let's give it a, let's give it a shot and see what happens. But other, other than that, I, 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 in August, I'm going to Guadalcanal and, then I, and I am going to Tarawa. So I will be going to Guadalcanal to get a little bit of an idea about some filming there. And I'm going to go to Tarawa, same thing, to see if I can get some ideas for filming there. I'm sure it wouldn't be hard to come up with ideas. I'm sure... Uh... You'll be inundated with thoughts and uh, different things. Yes, for that's for sure. Yeah, Terra was a little bit uh, overpopulated right now, so they have a lot of issues there. It will be very hard to pick up what the battlefield looked like. Very few of the things are there. The shoreline has changed slightly, so it will just be good to see Bonnyman's bunker. It's it's exposed now. There's no sand on it, and and the command bunkers and just kind of walk the beach. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about it. Absolutely. Well, I hope uh, wherever you end up in the world, uh, you and I are going to be uh, communicating quite a bit when yeah. uh, I know I know you met RT uh, over the weekend and his uh, idea for a movie about Pathfinder. So <laughs> you and I are going to be hopefully yeah. uh, working together on that to make sure that that thing uh, comes through to fruition because that's that's an incredible story and there's no better person to to to, to bring on board uh, than obviously than you on some of that so um, well guys uh, I don't have any kind of a book review but I can tell you I watched the Memphis Bell a couple nights ago because it never gets old and it's like the best war movie ever the so original or I the remake oh the movie okay. yeah not the documentary yeah. Real quick, if, if people were interested um, in, you know, becoming a member of the Liberty Jump team or even looking into it or just looking for more information, what website would they go to? What's your social media links, et cetera? So um, you can go to our social media, um, Liberty Jump team. We actually have two pages on Facebook. Um, there's Liberty Jump team, which is our main page. And then another organization wanted to help us out. So they started Liberty Jump team, INC, uh, Liberty Jump team, Inc., so there's two pages. I mainly post to uh, the standard one, Liberty Jump Team. There's about 55, 5,600 people that are there. We have an Instagram page that we're starting to build on. We have a Twitter page that we're trying to build. Um, and we're starting to develop our YouTube page, um, our Liberty Jump Team YouTube page. Uh, or you can look us up online, Liberty Jump Team. Uh, when you do ask for information, I'm the one that emails it to you. We have packets that we've put all together so you can see exactly what we do, why we do it, what our mission statement is, and, and all that. And as always, you guys can head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, find the page for this episode, and find all the links there as well. I do want to say don't sleep on TikTok. I know it's new, but there are huge World War II, especially these younger kids have a thirst for it. Uh, there's a guy out of California. His name slips in right now. I had him on a few months back. And he works in a museum, and he just shows his his jeeps and the deuce and the halves, and he gets a ton of traffic. So um, if you guys are going down that social media alley, I'm sure your videos would blow up, especially from the inside of the C-47s. You get guys in full uniform. So 
Um, you know, you're in a video. TikTok's nothing more than one minute video. So don't sleep on that. You guys could probably get a lot of attention down that channel too. Perfect. Thank you. That's a great idea. Henry, you got any plugs? Any events coming up, sir? No. Um, while I was on vacation, I did have a lovely conversation with Dan Carlin a few days ago, as you guys know. So, uh, really good conversation. He'll be coming on in May. Um, Which, by the way, to- not to cut you off, I just reminded me. Things are growing here so quickly at the What's the Skullabut podcast. We went from having one guest every two to three weeks. We are now booked up through May 16th. So as I said at the beginning of last week's redeployment episode, um, don't worry. We have fresh episodes coming up every week. We are now booked up through May. So things yeah, are growing fantastic. here, and our guest list is getting huge, and uh, which is awesome. So for those of you guys listening, for those new listeners, keep on listening because we got a lot more guests coming our way. Yeah, absolutely. That that's really all I'm going to throw out there for this one. What about you, Jeff? Yeah, well, uh, while we're talking about guests, just to kind of whet people's appetite, we've got uh, a friend of mine that lives in Culver City, California, that is basically the West Coast's uh, Douglas MacArthur. He, he is an incredible MacArthur reenactor that's going to be coming on. I'm starting uh, to see a theme here, aren't theme. you, Henry? First, he's hanging out with Pat, and now he's got a MacArthur guy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a, a, a theme here. He's gonna have Roosevelt well, coming on. Well, actually, I was just gonna say that he also does a great Roosevelt, and his wife does a great Eleanor. But he's more, ah. he's more known, he's more known for his his MacArthur. I mean, he does a great, and I think he's got stuff all over YouTube as well. But uh, he's come in to to do some stuff with me here in Texas. We've we've done stuff. Uh, in fact, last time I saw him was at the uh, Wings Over Dallas Air Show. I guess that was maybe twenty. 19 somewhere in there they were kind of doing a big um anniversary to to the mainly the pacific theater so if you're familiar with that famous picture of macarthur inside of a b-17 kind of pointing out you know like this out of a waste gun window yeah. uh, we kind of reenacted uh that photo and, and things like that and then of course we've got um a gal coming on from operation meatball which if you're not familiar with operation meatball get familiar with it because she travels with world war ii vets all over the world uh i was lucky to have her uh at the air show a couple weeks ago i think she brought seven or eight world war ii veterans just from the san antonio area and i mean it was just what a pleasure it was to be able to to talk with some of those guys and i I think when we do the podcast she'll be in the netherlands (laughs) when we do it uh, so yeah, a lot of great stuff. And then the only other thing is Jeff comes uh, home in late 2023 from working on his Pathfinder project. Hey guys, I got this guy. who does a perfect Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> right, <yeah>. Got him booked. <laughs> His trifecta. Uh, so this, uh, more of a local event, uh, this coming Saturday is uh, a, a local festival here in town. Uh, they've been doing it for about 40 years. And uh, I've been in, involved in the parade quite a bit since I got back from the war. We, we've always had a Humvee or something for me to ride in. And, and this year, uh, just, you know, because of the impact that we had at this uh, at this last air show, they asked uh, my very own uh, living history unit here, Company B, uh, to be the Grand Marshal of the parade, which is just such a cool honor. Uh, so we're going to be bringing in some military vehicles from all eras, and, and we're going to have our little convoy uh, at the beginning of the parade. Uh, this weekend and then uh, a little show and tell of course it's, this is only good for our, our video uh, guests here but uh, behind me is sitting uh, and, and of course Don and, and Henry are, are familiar with this but this is a Philco radio that uh, just kind of came across had a good friend of mine just sent me a screenshot said hey uh, this is right here down the road and uh, do you want it I said uh, yeah absolutely and when I uh, when I got it in the garage and I started cleaning it up, I plugged it in. It works. All the tubes lit up, which was really cool to see. And that's when I noticed in red grease pen on the back, there's a little inspection date, and it's dated twelve five forty one. Wow. The Friday before sure. the attack on Pearl. So what a neat piece. So I figured well, since we're into the museum here and let folks see it. Um, is uh, something special. Well, since we're showing off our Philcos, I might as well show you my 38 there you go. <laughs> over there in the corner. <laughs> um, 
I actually, that one I haven't plugged in because the power cord insulation is cracked and the wires exposed. And so even though what an error correct, I went on this great and this antique style um, electronics company's page and I ordered a um, cloth braided one. But uh, when I went to replace it, I realized all that stuff is uh, solid state. So that power wire, I would basically have to take out the whole inside to resolder it. And then I was looking online on collectors of that, and they're talking about how you need to upgrade the tubes and all that. So before I go down that road, I'm going to probably have to find a, a full radio restoration guy to handle that because it's going to be more than me just soldering on a power cord, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that's that's one of my, my latest finds. And uh, I just want to say before we wrap up again, Scott, thanks so much for coming on tonight. I know you've been really busy. You've been traveling a lot. You have a lot going on. Um, but but really, really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story, sharing your passion especially, and, and look forward to, to seeing you again and working with you. And, and maybe uh, we get another episode or two out of you when you get back from your travels uh, throughout the world this year. Yeah, they, thanks for having me. It was it was a great honor to be on here and talk to you guys about everything and, and all that. And uh, I'll have to go see Henry there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. His, my connection is uh, my daughter's at Marion Military Institute, and that's where his dad went for a little nice. bit. So uh, I'm going to be going out there for her graduation uh, and all that. So I'll have to stop by and see Henry. Yeah, give me a call when you're in the area, man. We'll, yes, we'll sir, find we'll a way do. to hook up for sure. We'll do. And if anybody's listening, the Red Wing Boots in Southwest Florida closed their doors during the pandemic. And my living history season has been cut short because after my Georgia event, my boots are about, all I don't know, six to seven years old. And on both of the inside of my insoles, the stitching has separated. So I got a gap in my sole of my boots. And if I'm afraid if I do any more events, the sole will completely dissect and fall off. So I say all that, say this. Anybody listening, if you know a good boot re-seamer, uh, re um, maybe Jeff knows a couple of guys out there in Texas with all the cowboy boots walking around, but I need a boot guy um, so I can get my Cochran Air jump boots fixed so I can get back into my season because uh, I haven't done anything since Georgia because I don't want to blow my boots out. So it's been a short living history season for me. But, uh, yeah, problems are, problems are all around. But uh, that's going to wrap it up. If you do know a boot guy, email us at uh, mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, also email us. We love the emails at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Thank you guys so much. And we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs> And we're off the air. Good job, guys. All right, thanks.